Hello and shalom. Welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I'm your host, Joe Amon. We got a great show ahead, so buckle up and hang on. Here we go. Shalom, shalom. Hey, everybody. Welcome, 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 welcome to this episode of Image Bearers Radio. I am your host, Joe Amor, coming to you all the way from southwest Louisiana. I hope you are doing fantastically well. I hope that your week is going well and uh, that you are enjoying the winter, the frigid winter months. Well, I guess depending on where you are. Uh, but I hope you are well, and it is my privilege to be with you all today. I want to say a quick welcome to everyone who's listening for the first time, and uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation and uh, introduce myself a little bit. My name is Joe. Uh, I'm the pastor at Out of Ashes Ministries in DeRitter, Louisiana, southwest Louisiana. And uh, hey, it's nice to meet you. Uh, if you're a second time listener or back or one of our faithful listeners, I just appreciate you all so very, very much. Um, you are awesome, and I appreciate the community that you're uh, you're helping to build and um, being a part of this community. This is an extension of Out of Ashes, uh, our our ministry fellowship, and so it's a really good, uh, really good group, a really good family, uh, just a, a great. Um, a great place to be. And uh, so I appreciate you being along for the ride. I hope you enjoy the discussion today. Um, We are going to jump right in, right after we say a quick prayer, to actually last week's Parsha. Um, And I I really do wish I was organized enough to do these ahead of time, (laughs) and I'm just not. Uh, That's just part of how I'm wired. Um, But um, I want to talk about last week's Parsha. And that was Mishpatim and the Haftarah. And the reason I want to talk about it, we, we did it on Shabbat. I taught it on Shabbat. And um, I, I've been asked a couple times, you know, like, why, you know, how do you, why do you do the same thing on your radio show sometimes that you do on Shabbat? Uh, why not do something different? And to be honest, one of the main reasons is just because I only have so much spray, space in my brain. Um, and whenever God is dealing with me about something, it usually takes up a pretty good bit of bandwidth. Um, and so that's kind of usually the, the vibe that I'm on for that, you know, that couple of weeks or whatever. And, um, also it's because we have a different audience and on image bears radio than we do on Shabbat. Um, and so, you know, it catches everybody. And lastly, I think it's just because there are things that I wanted to say during Shabbat that I didn't say, or things I want to drill down on a little bit deeper, take a little more time on or something like that. So, um, there's some reasons why, um, by the way, uh, if you are listening to this and you uh, don't have a Torah pursuant Yeshua-centered fellowship, but uh, you're looking for one and you don't have one around you, I'd love to invite you to join us on Shabbat mornings at 10 a.m. Central. Um, and we stream our services uh, just about every Shabbat, with a rare exception. Uh, maybe a few times a year we don't, but every Shabbat we're streaming at our website at outofashesministries.org or on YouTube or Facebook. If you want to be a part of like the chat community, you can jump on Facebook and catch us there. 
And uh, so, yeah, um, we're going to get into uh, Parshat and Haftarat Mishpatim today. Um, may even take two episodes because this is my favorite Parsha. And, well, one of my two favorite Parshot. And um, so we're going to take some time to talk about it today. But before we do that, let us go to the Father in a moment of prayer. Avinu Shabbat Shemayim, our Father that's in heaven, we bless you and we thank you so much for this opportunity we have. These little miracles that we have every single day, I want to take a I want to take a time and a moment to say thank you, and to say how much we appreciate and love you, and we pray that you grow us through this time together. So we are in uh, Haftarah, Mishpatim is where we're going to be starting, and that's in Jeremiah 34. And uh, of course, if you're driving, just listen. <laughs> Don't pull out your Bible. Um, but if you're listening to this and you're you know sitting around the house, whatever, um, you know, be, feel free to follow along with us. Um, I am reading today from the Stone Edition Humash, uh, and uh, so this particular this is put out by Art Scroll. Uh, this particular edition has the Torah, the Haftarot, and the five Megalot um, with uh, commentary, and, which, and it's really, really good. Um, and so I want to start out in Jeremiah 34 today. Um, like I said, Parshat Mishpatim is one of my favorites, um, one of my top three at least um, of Parshiot. And this Parsha is absolutely slam-packed with stuff. Um, I believe 53 mitzvot in this one Parsha itself. So it's there's a lot to cover. Um, we're going to focus on the Haftarah today because I want to I want to uh, example or illustrate how I uh, tend to read Scripture and how I tend to study Scripture. We're doing a series right now um, on our Shabbat. Uh, during our Shabbat fellowship services. We broke that series last week, but we're going to get back into it this week on reading the Bible better. And I think one of the ways that we, that we, those of us that have been called back to the Torah, one of the things that we realize is that um, we really can't, we really can't read, you know, the prophets, the gospels, um, the New Testament really well, unless we really understand the Torah. And we say that, and I want to make sure that we know what we're saying when we say that. So this is going to be an exercise in, in kind of doing that. And we have talked about like passages in Isaiah before that we uh, in, in Christianity that you know, are taken to be about Yeshua, about Jesus. And when we go back and look at them historically, they weren't given as a future telling or a foretelling of this that, you know, this one that would come name Jesus and and all the stuff that he would do. That's just not what those prophecies were designed for when they were given. They were they were understood by the gospel and New Testament writers as applying to Yeshua, but they were not initially about him. 
And I know that can be a hard kind of thing to get our heads around. That's not what this episode is about. We'll get to that in future episodes. But we, um, w- what we do then is we go back and we look at what the prophecy was originally about, who it was to, what kind of situation they were in, why was the prophecy given, right? And we start to understand the meaning of the prophecy when it was given, what impact it had, what it was calling for when it was given. What was God, what was Hashem trying to say initially to those people in their context, in, you know, in their situation? And then when we, when we really get a good understanding, I don't mean a cursory understanding, I mean a really good, uh, deep understanding of the prophecy in its time, in its context, then whenever we come back and we read the passages where those those prophecies were attributed to Yeshua, then we understand more what's going on with the author, the writer, with Yeshua himself. And so what we don't want to do or we want to correct maybe that we've done in the past is that we don't want what's said about Yeshua in light of these prophecies or what Yeshua said in light of these prophecies to define the prophecy that was originally given. We want to look at the other way and see how is Yeshua using or how is it used about him uh, compared to how it was originally given because it gives us more context and more understanding. So we'll we'll get some of those in future episodes, I promise, because they're phenomenal and mind-blowing, but we're going to start here today in Haftarah uh, Mishpatim. So uh, Jeremiah chapter 34 and verse 8 it says, The word came to Jeremiah from Hashem after King Zedekiah sealed a covenant with the entire people that was in Jerusalem, that every man set free his bondsman and his bondswoman, the Jew and the Jewess, and that no man should enslave his fellow Jew. All the leaders and the entire people who entered into the covenant hearkened that every man should set free his bondsman and every man his bondswoman. Not to enslave them further, they hearkened and they sent him off. Okay, so... Right off the get, right off the jump here, we're dealing with uh, the commandment, the judgment, the mishpat, that was given at the beginning of our Torah portion. And, of course, the Haftarah always corresponds to the Torah portion in some way. Um, and so we're, we're talking about the very beginning verses of Parsha Mishpatim, which is Shemot 21, Exodus 21, right? So let's, let's go back to Exodus 21 and let's read that so we know what we're dealing with. So verse 1 says, And these are the ordinances you shall place before them. If you buy a Jewish bondsman, he shall work for you six years, and in the seventh he shall go free for no charge. If he shall arrive by himself, then he shall leave by himself. If he is the husband of a woman, his wife shall leave with him. If his master will give him a woman, and she bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children shall belong to her master, and he shall go out by himself. But if the bondsman shall say, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I shall not go free. Then his master shall bring him to the court and shall bring him to the door or to the doorpost. And his master shall bore through his ear with an awl and he shall serve him forever. Okay, so that's the mitzvah uh, of the bondsman, of the, the Hebrew slave, we, we say, or the, the Jewish bondsman. And, you know, if there ever was an example of how we've done in history, in our history, we've done a really, really terrible job of reading the Bible well. This is a prime example, right? This passage has been used, of course, in American history uh, to to approve 
all sorts of inhumanity, discrimination, abuse, murder. I mean, you know, we know our history, and we we know that uh, in many cases, the Bible was looked to as the authority or as the permission to be able to do this. And it's one of the most stark examples we have of how to not read Scripture, how to not read the Bible. And and it goes even further. This is not just a linguistic thing. I mean, there's discussion and debate about this, the, the word servant, uh, eved in Hebrew. Um, it means slave, but then it also can mean servant. And we try to get around it. We try to dance around it a lot of times because of the issues that we've had in our past. And so I'm not talking about reading this better from a linguistic standpoint, from a vocabulary standpoint, and trying to figure out the hidden meaning or the true meaning of the words. I'm talking about how we approach really the, the Tanakh, the, the Hebrew Scriptures as a whole, right? Um, because what we're given here is, is, not, real, is not real detailed, it doesn't give us a lot of explanation. It doesn't give us a lot of description. We don't really know what's going on. We don't really know, you know, what are the circumstances that led to this slavery or the servitude. We're left with a lot of holes um, in this particular thing. And for, for this to be such a big deal, there's not much information there, right? I mean, when we, when we talk about American slavery, um, it's a big deal. Right. I mean, obviously, you know, some couple of centuries later and we're still dealing with, you know, the the ripples and the effects of of slavery. It is it is a big deal. It it colored the the history and and the present uh, state of America and will continue to probably throughout its future. And so it's a big deal. Owning another human being is a big deal. And yet the Torah doesn't give us a whole lot of details. So. How then do we navigate this? How do we understand it? How do we how do we pick it apart and parse it and you know and and really get down to what's going on? Is the Bible saying that it's okay to own another human being? Is that what the Israelites understood when they received this commandment? So let's talk about that for a second. It's interesting that just after the the ten commandments, the ten sayings, right, the ten words, the ten matters. Um, this is the first thing we jump into is slavery. Now, a question that, that I wonder is, were there any Hebrew slaves at this time? I doubt it. They just came out of, uh, out of Mitzrayim, right? Out of Egypt. They were just were slaves. And so it's really interesting over and over, uh, throughout the Tanakh, when Hashem speaks through someone and refers to, uh, himself and his role, he says, I am, you know, the God of your fathers, etc. He says, I'm the one that took you out of Egypt, out of the land of slavery. So this slavery juxtaposition is is really intentional and really important because they just came out of slavery. They're still in the in the with the residue of being slaves, trying to form a new identity. And it's something that Hashem is going to remind them of over and over and over and over again. Then remember, you were slaves in Egypt. I delivered you. I brought you out, right? I'm your redeemer. So this idea of slavery and this being the first of this chunk of commandments right off the bat is really intentional and really important. And we shouldn't just pass over it and shouldn't just miss it like, oh, well, that's odd. We should really dig in and try to figure out why that is. Um, and, I, and I think that our Haftarah speaks to, to some of that as well. So as, a, as an overall approach to Scripture, um, you know, we just a couple of weeks ago, we had Hanok Young here 
one of my best friends and just a, a great guy. And he does a lot of thinking about Jewish-Christian relationships and about uh, especially those of us in the Torah movement who he has, you know, um, had a heart for for the last, you know, 25 years. Uh, and he does a lot of thinking about this and how to help us understand things better and, and how, to, uh, how to help us along our journey. And so, you know, one of the things he, he mentioned um, when he was here last is he said, you know, we have as, as, as Hebrew rooters or Messianics or whatever we call ourselves, um, he said, you know, groups will sit around for, you know, two or three hours and, and drosh a scripture. You know, what does it mean in Hebrew? What's the paleo? What's the this? What's the that? You know, and everybody will give their opinions and everybody will have their, you know, their opinion on it. And we'll, you know, we'll cross-reference it with other passages, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, and this, some of you understand, this goes on sometimes for hours trying to get to the meaning of a passage. And he said, what I rarely find, if ever, is... In that two-hour period and those 20 people, how many people ever go or how many times has it ever happened to go, well, you know what, let's look, at, uh, let's look at what the Jewish commentary is. You know, let's look at what the people that actually wrote it, let's look what they, at what they have to say about it. And that exactly is the point of this episode. It's this, this how we approach Scripture, how we read the Bible better in this, in, and using this as an illustration. So – you know, we can, again, we can go in through it linguistically um, from a vocabulary standpoint. You know, we can do all that kind of work um, and all that kind of stuff. We can even look at a historical, you know, things and all that. But let, why don't we just go and see what the actual, uh, what the actual people of Judah, the, the, the Jews that preserved this text for us and actually wrote it and actually lived it, why don't we see what they have to say about it? So there's some... Uh, some really, you know, some interesting stuff here um, and, and that I want to get into. And this is going to be kind of one of those exercises in getting outside of your box maybe a little bit. So I'm just going to go ahead and tell you that all of these, uh, all of the things I'm going to read and I'm going to cite come from Chabad.org. Now, this is not a wholesale uh, endorsement of everything on Chabad, um, but they do provide a lot of texts uh, that are are very, very foundational and fundamental to, um, to the Torah, right? So, so this is not necessarily opinion. This is, this is the way that they understand it. So uh, I just want to read this little quick excerpt. It says, um, the Torah gives us very exact instructions about one should treat his servant. And that my first question is, but does it though? <laughs> first, they say, how does a Jew become a servant or a Hebrew become a servant? Now, that's, that's one question we ask. So how is this even a thing, right? They go on to answer, if someone steals and then doesn't have money to repay what he stole, the court sells him in order to pay it. Okay, so stop. So that right there is huge. That is absolutely huge. Because we tend to, those of us new to Torah, and when I say new to Torah, I mean you've been studying the Torah six months or you've been studying the Torah you know, 20 years, 20 years in, you're still new to the Torah because you didn't grow up with it. And it is a radically different mindset than probably you came up with. So this is huge because we tend to think about the, the, the people in the Hebrews in the desert, the Israelites in the wilderness, um, with kind of a vigilante justice type of setup. So um, you know, in the commandments where there's the, the penalty is death or stoning, um, you know, kind of joking. But if you think this way, I want to try to help you. 
the, the this idea is like, well, if I'm an, an ancient Israelite, I'm in the wilderness, and I see somebody doing something that breaks a commandment and that it, the penalty is stoning, then it's my job to pick up the nearest stone and run over there and smack him in the head, right, and and execute justice. And this kind of vigilante type of 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 system is is what some people tend to think about the Torah and the commandments and how it was done. And so this very statement here is a huge should be a huge shift for for those of you that think that way. Um and the fact that it says that the court sells him in order to pay it. Now, what does that mean? What is that what are the the you know rep, the what is the details around that? And what context does that give us? Well, if someone steals something and they don't have the money to repay what they stole. Okay, but let's stop even there. If someone steals something, let's say if someone steals something from you, you can accuse them of stealing, right? But in the Torah context, is that sufficient for them to be brought before the court? No. There has to be at least two witnesses. So someone else, so if if someone stole or you feel like someone stole something from you, you can't just accuse them and, and drag them into court. You have to establish a second witness. So that's a huge safeguard, right? That's a huge safeguard against um, against you know undue accusation, unfair accusation, and so that's a safeguard, right? That's a safety mechanism where we're not just picking up anybody and and bring them to the court so that they can be sold into slavery. No, there's a safeguard of a second witness. So secondly. There has to be a court. There has to be a court, uh, you know, a trial. There has to be defense. There has to be, you know, prosecution and defense. There have to be witnesses on both sides. There, ha- this is a process. This is a process. And then, if the if the 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 person is found guilty of theft, and they don't have the money to repay what they stole, because that's in line with the the Torah, right? You repay plus whatever you stole. Which, if someone is stealing and it's legitimate theft, they probably don't have the funds to replace it anyway. But they are then sold by the court, not individual transactions. This is by the court. And who is the court? Well, the court could be a number of different different people. It could be the Great Sanhedrin. It could be um, you know the local town court or the tribal court. It, it could it could be the uh, collection of elders. Um, depending on what time you're in, it could be a lot of different groups of people. And so we go on to read. It says, "Now that he's a servant, can his master do with him as he wishes, ordering him around and telling him to sleep in the barn?" Not exactly. The Torah says that he must treat the servant like the others in his household. The same good food clean bed, etc. The master must also support and provide these things for the servant's wife and children. Finally, a servant is only a servant for six years. At the end of that, he goes free. So, did you know that there are actually laws surrounding this whole acquiring a slave, becoming a slave, freedom of slaves, etc.? In uh, a writing called Hilkot Avadim, there are, and this is part of Mishneh Torah uh, from uh, Rambam, which is kind of a condensation of uh, the Mishnah, uh, Mishneh, not Mishnah, Mishneh Torah, which means repetition, repetition of the Torah. Um, there are in Hilkot Avadim, there, and again, you can find this on Chabad's website, there are 13 mitzvot surrounding the acquisition and the treatment of a slave. 
five positive and eight negative. And when we say positive and negative commandments, positive means those things that you are to do, and negative things means those things you are not to do. Not positive and negative like good and bad. To do and not to do. Okay? So there's 13 of these uh, that are that are listed out for us and that we can see kind of what this world of slavery looked like. And this is the exercise that I, I want to encourage you to start going through. When you find a commandment, a mitzvah, a passage that's difficult, search it for yourself. Absolutely. Do the, whole, the, the, the Hebrew word studies. Do it because those things are very good uh, disciplines to learn and practices to have. However, don't negate um, what the, the sages have said and, and what we have in the, the actual writings. So we're going to get into these 13 mitzvot right after the break. Don't go away. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the second segment in this episode of Image Bearers Radio. We are in uh, Haftarah Mishpatim slash Parsha Mishpatim, uh, back and forth, um, using these passages as an illustration of how to read the Bible better by looking at um, Jewish writings and considering what the, uh, the rabbis and the sages and the oral law has to say. Uh, so the oral law, right, which is a matter of much contention, in most Hebrew uh, roots uh, communities, and some are for it, some are against it, some don't know how they feel about it. Um, but what we have, if you are not familiar with what exactly, sometimes you go like, "Oh, well, the oral law." I know that's bad, and I have this conversation probably every week, at least every two weeks, and I'll I'll, I'll connect with a new person who's you know trying to follow the Torah, and one of the questions they'll ask is, "Well, do you study the oral law?" In a, in a negative way, like, oh, well, you, do stu- you, know, you don't study the oral law, do you? And my response is usually with more questions. Um, you know, what do you know about it? What have you heard about it? What do you, you know, and my, one of my questions is always, have you ever read any of the oral law? Oh, well, no. And I'm like, well, how do you know what's in it? Well, you know, I know it says this and that. And so there's a lot of misunderstanding about what the, the oral law is. And the, the Torah, Shebiel Pei, is what it's called in Hebrew, uh, the Torah from the mouth. And so the, just a really super quick, super, super quick understanding of what the, the – when we f- refer to the oral law, what we're referring to is we're referring to, number one, the Mishnah, right? The Mishnah, M-I-S-H-N-A-H, the Mishnah, which is the – the, the laws of the court, the laws of the Sanhedrin, the, decin- the decisions of the Sanhedrin, which were passed down from generation to generation orally until uh, the first to second century AD or BCE, when they were written down by Yehuda Hanasi, the, the last, uh, last real uh, president of the, the last great Sanhedrin. They were written down in, in, in actually in, in, in text. In scrolls, and this was called the Mishnah. Now, the Mishnah has no opinion in it. The Mishnah is the laws. This is how the court decided we were going to walk out the Torah. 
because just like we're reading here, the Torah is a structure. It's a, it's a skeleton. When you start to, and you know this for your, this is not like, this is not, there's no question about this. You have dealt with this in your own life as you started to begin to try to walk out the Sabbath, right? You had questions about, well, what exactly is work? Um, when exactly does the Sabbath begin? Uh, you know, when does it end? What, you know, what are we to do? What does it mean to guard and keep the Sabbath? What does that mean? What are we supposed to do on the Sabbath? Do we just, you know, sit in the corner and, and stare in, you know, stare into, into the corner for the whole day for 24, 25 hours? What does that mean? Because the Torah is not super duper specific. And so the the Jewish people understand that, the Israelites understood that when the divine command reaches terrestrial earth, humanity, there has to be a fleshing out. There has to be an agreement and an understanding within the community of how we're going to do this together. So these are the laws of the Hebrew slave, right? So we're talking about that. This is one of the areas that that the court had to decide, well, what are we going to do? And listen, this happens in our justice system all the time. We have a constitution. But you know how many laws are in the constitution itself versus how many laws are actually on the books I think I checked this out several years ago, and there was something like 7 million laws in America. That's insane. The Constitution has, how many, 25 amendments? So you see the variation there, right, the difference. So because of that, and because we know that, and that's a real-world modern example for us, now we should be able to look back at the biblical text and say, okay, the Torah is the Constitution. But then there are things that maybe details and, and, and issues and things that the Torah maybe doesn't address specifically that just come up in life, right? It's just life happens. And it doesn't mean that God forgot about those things when he was giving the Torah. It doesn't mean that Moses you know, forgot to write them down or that part was lost. It just means that there are, there are things that come up that the Torah, um, the Torah gave us a structure about, but then God expected us to work together to 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 live out right to figure out and to live out so you have the mishnah right that's said this is going to be short sorry i get excited <laughs> you have the mishnah well then you had rabbis all through antiquity that were giving their opinion or giving their ideas their commentary about the the different commands and some of these were based on you know geographics some were based on demographics Rabbi A didn't live in the same place as Rabbi B, so some of the rulings were harder to implement, and he had an opinion about what to do, Rabbi, you know, blah, blah, blah. Those, that commentary and those, those, those discussions are called the Gemara, G-E-M-A-R-A, Gemara, Gemara, and they are just that. They are discussions, they're arguments, they're debates between ancient rabbis and leaders and sages, really smart people that, that, that lived with the scripture. And um, they are, they are, you know, discussions. And you know what? There's some crazy nutty stuff in those discussions. Yes, absolutely. But what happens is whenever someone quotes something that is just really out there, right, from, from the, the quote-unquote oral law, when someone quotes that, usually if there's something that's really crazy and really like no one believes that, right, that's insane, Generally, I would say 99.999% of the time, that is part of this Gemara, the Gemara, where, where these rabbis are having a discussion. And the great thing about the, the Gemara is that every argument is recorded and preserved. 
They didn't take out the, the crazy stuff. They left it in there. And what you'll generally find is if you read through these discussions, they can be quite painful, but if you read through these discussions, what you'll find is that that crazy guy, his opinion is the minority opinion, and all the other rabbis go like, no, you're crazy. And they, and they, they, they rule against him, or they, the majority is against that opinion. And that's all there in the Gemara for us to see and for us to read. I think it's fantastic. They didn't clean up the history. They just let us – they just left it there for everybody to read. I think that's awesome. So the Mishnah is the rulings. The Gemara is the commentary on the rulings. Those two things were put together in one big compendium called the Talmud. And the Talmud is formatted physically on the page in a very specific way where in the middle of the page you will have the Mishnah. Right, the the particular thing that's being discussed, the particular ruling, or halakha, the walking that's that's uh, being discussed. Around that in text, around that framing that on the rest of the page are all the discussions about it. And so, it's really important to know exactly when we say, "Oh, blah blah blah," the oral Torah in a negative way. It's really important to understand what we're saying, you know, what we're saying, and and know what it's about. This is I'm not saying that you have to follow the the oral Torah. What I'm saying is I want you to understand what it is because it is extremely helpful as an insight into ancient Israelite religion and and to Judaism past and present. Okay, so that's my quick, uh, well, not so quick, eight-minute uh, shtick on the, in the oral Torah and the Mishnah and the Talmud. So this is Mishneh Torah by Rambam. Uh, which, again, is a repetition of the Torah. It's kind of a condensation. Uh, this is in a section called Hilkot Avadim. So, 13 mitzvot. The first one is the laws containing, our laws governing the acquisition of a servant, Hebrew servant. Well, where do we find that? Well, that's in the Torah. Number two, not to sell him in the manner that servants are usually sold. So, how are servants usually sold? Well, you know, not to appropriate our history or misappropriate our history and compare it to biblical history, but... Think about slavery in general. Slavery is generally um, an, an oppression type thing, right, where, where someone is a, attained or acquired through kidnapping, through violence, through whatever. Um, and then they are sold in a very uh, minimizing and dehumanizing way, right? Out in public, they're auctioned, they're, you know, they're usually stripped, uh, if not naked, just about naked. I mean, it's very demoralizing and very dehumanizing. It, it sucks away someone's soul and their dignity, right? So the, the very first, you know, really uh, precaution against that is not to sell a Hebrew slave in the manner that servants are usually sold. So it's the opposite of that. So make sure it's humanizing. Make sure it's, it's with dignity as much as possible, right? Remember, this is someone who stole something, and this is a consequence. This is not some innocent person that we went and got and just because we wanted a slave, okay? Number three, do not make him perform excruciating labor, okay? That's pretty interesting. Again, if we think about if you've seen the movie Roots, if you've studied American history, if you've studied slavery, you know some of the horror stories that come out of slavery. Now, if we would have approached Exodus 21, Mishpatim, in this way, Man, we'd have had a whole different thing, you know, thought process about about what the Bible says, quote unquote, about slavery and how it was lived out when it was originally given. So, not to make him perform excruciating labor. That's completely flies in the face of what we think of slavery to be. Number four, not to make him perform servile tasks. 
And the idea here, servile task, is not to make them do anything that your own family wouldn't do. So you can't make your Hebrew servant do something that your own son, you wouldn't ask your own son to do, or that you wouldn't do yourself. Number five, not to allow a resident alien to make him perform excruciating labor. So resident alien, someone who is not an Israelite but is living in the land, um, you have to protect your servant against abuse from others. Number six, to grant a Hebrew servant a severance gift when he attains his freedom. Do you get the, the sense that this is sounding less and less like what we think of slavery? I hope this is breaking that paradigm for you, if you have that paradigm. That this sh- that 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 Evedivrit uh, uh, Hebrew slaves in the Torah should not in any way be compared to the atrocities that we know of as slavery. Right? This is a different ball game altogether. They're to get a severance gift whenever they attain their freedom. The fact that they can attain freedom is a whole nother game changer, right? That there is a there is a fixed point where they can gain their freedom. Number seven, similarly, not to let them go free empty-handed. So you're giving them, you're making an investment in their future, which is awesome. Uh, number eight, to redeem a Hebrew maidservant. Number nine, to designate her as a wife. This is, again, can be a sticky thing, right? Yes, Multiple wives were a thing in, in ancient, they're still a thing today, right? There's not a thing necessarily in America, although it is sadly starting to make a comeback. But this idea is that you promote her to the status of a wife, the, the respect and the honor that is due to a woman. Uh, number 10, not to sell her a second time. So she's not just to be passed off as property. Number 11, to have a Canaanite servant work forever unless his master causes one of his primary limbs to fail. Now, this is where, honestly, just for me, too, this gets a little sticky and a little uncomfortable. So Hebrews are supposed to be treated really well. Those from the nations, you treat them okay, but, like, if something happens, it happens, right? Which is kind of uncomfortable, but this is an ancient text, and this is what it is. So a Canaanite servant will work for you forever unless... You do such detriment to him that it causes him not to be product, not to be able to be productive for himself. Uh, number twelve, not to return to his master a servant who fled from the diaspora to Eretz Israel. So this is, of course, kind of a later, uh, a later development, and this idea that someone is in the diaspora and they go to, they make Aliyah, they go to the land of Israel, but they were a servant in the diaspora, right? You're not supposed to return them back to their master because they're in the land now, and the land is 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 what's important. Uh, and 13, uh, and last, not to oppress the servant who has fled from us. So someone flees from you, you're not to go get them, beat them, you know, make them work harder, et cetera, et cetera. And then in the rest of Hilkot Avadim, there is uh, explanations of all of these different, uh, these 13 different different laws, which I think are really pretty incredible. So we are, we are seeing now and have the sense that Hebrew slavery is not quite the same as what we might think it is. And I hope this has been good for you, and I hope that it, uh, it helps to, to kind of break that idea um, 
idea from you. See, this is a way we can read the Bible better. So now when we go back to Mishpatim, we, and we read about the Hebrew bondservant, now we have a context. Now we have word pictures that pop into our heads rather than the, the scene from Roots, right? Rather than that scene, we have a scene where like this is somebody who stole probably because they made some bad decisions or just because life was really crappy to them. And so they go through a, pro, a fair and just process to determine what happens to them. And then they are paired with a master, sold to a master, and that, that money that the court uses to sell them, that money is used to pay back and to restore what was, what was stolen. Okay? And uh, then they work for this master for six years. And in the seventh year, they go free with severance and with an investment to be able to start off. See, this is restorative justice, not retributive justice. There is a consequence, but that consequence is in restoring uh, we're not going to get to if they say they want to stay this week. Again, this may be a couple of different, uh, a couple of episodes, uh, because I think this is really, really important. And I, I hope, surely, you're you're finding this this interesting. So, in the last ten minutes or so that we have, um, I want to talk about why the seventh year. Okay, and uh, and we'll get back to the Haftarah. Maybe not in this episode, but it is important uh, that we do kind of you know close the loop and come back to the Haftarah. But I want to read this. This is again from Chabad.org, and this is from a rabbi. Um, this is from Rabbi Laser uh, Gurkow, and uh, he is a rabbi in uh, London, Ontario. And I think this is just absolutely fascinating. So we'll get through as much as we can because I really nerd out on this. And if you heard me teach this on Shabbat, you've heard this already, but it's good to hear it again. Um, so he begins this article by saying, Our Parsha teaches that a Jew may be sold into servitude for six years, but on this first day of the seventh year, the slave is automatically granted full liberty. This law invokes images of a spontaneous transformation from princess to pumpkin at the stroke of midnight. Kidding aside, why does the onset of a seventh year automatically produce emancipation? And that's what the, the article is going to be about. What is it about the seventh year? And I know, I know what you're thinking already. Well, it's about Shabbat, right? It's a Shemitah, seven, seventh completion, it's at rest, right? Yes, all of that, all of that stuff is true. But I want to read how, how he puts this because I think it's really interesting. There's some several interesting things in here. So he goes, uh, he goes to Shabbat, right? Shabbat. God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. The seventh day is described as the last in creation, the first in thought. As in all plots, the author's original thought is played out in the final scene. What does this mean in regards to Shabbat and creation? Well, what he's talking about is this idea that Shabbat is not an afterthought. God didn't go day one, two, three, four, five, six. I'm tired. Uh, let's take a day off. And you know what? This is such a good idea that from now through eternity, right, forever, we'll just have this eternal seventh day off, and we'll call it to cease, which is what Shabbat means in Hebrew, to cease. We'll call it to cease. This is the ceasing day, Shabbat. No, it's that Shabbat was the point of the week of creation, as recorded in, in Bereshit, and the six days are leading up to it, right? It is the point. Not Creation is not the point. Shabbat is the point, <laughs> which I think is really awesome. He goes on to say physical and spiritual origins. Now, this is going to be kind of deep and kind of weird, but we're going to break it apart. 
The Genesis account of creation is startlingly similar to the scientific view. Now, wait, I had a real big problem with this until I kind of read on, and I want, I want to help flesh this out a little bit. So he's saying that the Genesis account is really, uh, really close to the, the accepted scientific account. If you grew up in Protestant Christianity, uh, then the answer to that is, or the response to that is a big heck no. What are you talking about, right? Because we have evolution, Big Bang, and then we have uh, creation science, right? Let's go to the Ark Encounter in Kentucky. You'll, you know, you understand, there's the, like, we could read this statement and go like, no, no, it's not. <laughs> but let's just, let's just keep going. He says, our classic commentators, the sages, teach that the genesis of creation was an infinitesimally small point that was deliberately expanded by God until it reached the galactic size of our universe. You kind of hear some of those expanding universe, Big Bang kind of ideas there. But this is before Big Bang was ever a thing. He goes on to say, the mystics saw this primordial point as a highly refined substance that was more ethereal than tangible. The material matter of our universe evolved from this primordial substance through a series of progressively developmental stages that were divinely ordained in the course of creation. The mystics further explain that this highly rarefied substance was endowed with a soul and intelligence. It perceived itself as a product of God's creative power and was keenly aware of its creator. As this created substance progressed from a spiritual energy state to a material matter state, it gradually lost its esoteric awareness and reached the inanimate state of matter which we are familiar with today. Now, just to kind of break that apart, we have experienced this in certain sects of Christianity, especially uh, you know those that are more spirit-filled, you know, charismatic type things, where, as I said on Shabbat, you may see a child that's just lost in worship, or you, you're you're your children may come to you and with questions about heaven or, or you know or things like that and we go like what in, what is going on it's it's like they're they're tapped into something that we're not as adults and when we wonder what that is this is the the ancient jewish sages trying to explain um that when a soul comes from a shem that this is this is talking about creation but i'm going to talk about just in everyday birth and death or in everyday birth when a soul comes from Hashem and is born, that soul knows eternity. It knows Hashem. It knows the throne. It knows it knows heaven. And when it is born, then it becomes a phys- that soul becomes a physical being, and at conception and and through the birth process, and slowly but surely, that child as it grows year after year, the the spiritual that they came that we come from, it's more distant, and the tangible human world terrestrial world that we're living in becomes more of our reality. And so there's a shift, there's a gradation from from the the intangible to the tangible, from this we could say from the spirit to the flesh. And that's basically what what they're explaining. He goes on to say these two phenomena, uh, inflation and size and the transformation of substance were intimately linked. And so he's talking about how the universe universe grew and he says from the epicenter of the universe expanded in six physical directions, north, south, east, west, up and down. The spiritual development can also be traced through six dimensions, and that's kind of Kabbalistic in the Sephirot. We won't get to that today. But he says, to close this part, the six days of creation allude to these six dimensions of development. The seventh day, here's a kicker, returns represents a return to the seminal state of our Genesis. The seventh day 
so all during six days of creation, the everything's expanding, creation, God's organizing, he's administrating, he's putting into order everything. The seventh day is back to the beginning. It's back to that that pre-creation state, that, that heavenly or spiritual state, right? So he goes on to say, the Torah writes that for six days we perform our work, but the seventh day is devoted to God. Physical labor is possible through engaging in the physical state of our created universe, but devotion to God is made possible only through returning to an awareness of our creator. On Shabbat, we strive to return to our epicenter, to the original experience of our existence. Shabbat is a return to our point of genesis. Shabbat may indeed be described as the last day of creation coming at the end of the week, but it is first in thought. It constitutes a return to the plot, the beginning of the plot, rather. He says a Jew is a slave by definition. At Sinai, God drafted every member of our people into servitude. In the first ten commandments, first of the Ten Commandments, he declared himself our master. And in the second, he forbade our service to any master but himself. The Midrash teaches that when God intoned the words, I am the Lord your God, who redeemed you from Egypt and became our master, he extracted us from subjugation to our former masters in Egypt and secured our freedom from all manner of future subjugation. Sadly, this security was short-lived. Of course, we know about the golden calf, right? Freedom from slavery would now depend on individual behavior. I think that's an interesting point. Those who sinned could be sold into slavery. When a Jew was convicted of theft and could not afford to reimburse his victims, the court would generate the necessary funds by selling the convicted thief into servitude. The act of thievery is a statement against the first commandment. The words, I am God, your Lord, who has redeemed you from Egypt, indicate that God is cognizant of and intervenes in worldly affairs. The thief who prowls in the night takes no pains to ensure that man is looking, blatantly ignores God's presence and God's awareness. We're going to continue with this next week. There's so much more to dig into. I hope you have a great week. Shalom, shalom. Shalom. 